And I'd like to invite the rest of you to open your Bible to Luke chapter 17. So if you're using one of the Bibles that we provided for you there in the rows, we'll be on page 876 of those Bibles as we continue our study through the Gospel of Luke. Let's pray and ask God to speak to our hearts as we dive into his word. God, would you, uh, would you drown out every distraction? Lord, would you, would you make the cry of our hearts just an openness before you, Lord, that, that we would have nothing to hide in these moments, that, that you would actually just come in and speak to us at our various points of need, and that, that your spirit would uh, show us the truthfulness of of your word, and that it would change us from the inside out. Uh, so God, you, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know our deepest needs. And God, not only do you know how to meet our needs, but you have the power, the ability to meet the needs in this room and do, to do so simultaneously. So God, we pray that your spirit would move and work with uh, this spirit-inspired word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, do you ever wake up early enough to see the sun rise out of the night sky? Now, I know that probably most of us in here may not be that, you know, kind of early of a riser because, you know, last time I checked, which was actually this morning, um, the sun rises here at this time of the year, at 5.41 in the morning, okay? So, so who, who got up this morning, 5.30, just to see the sunrise and then the beautiful display that floods the, the night sky as, as dawn comes? Anybody wake up that early, okay? Um, a couple of you w- woke up that early. Did anyone just wake up that early to see the sunrise? Okay, that's kind of what, what I thought. Uh, Monday through Friday, if that's your work day, you know, AP, then, then that counts, okay? It, just, it counts. But, um, but, but I would assume that, that even for those of us that, that may not rise that early to see a sunrise, that we would all agree, even beyond photographers that may want to wake up that early to capture the beauty of a sunrise, or, you know, hopeless romantics that just want to wake up with their significant other, spouse, whatever, to see the sunrise. I, I suppose that all of us would agree that there is something so peaceful and so powerful and so hope-producing about the rising sun. More than just the beauty of it, what, what it symbolizes, the, the, the dawn of a new day symbolizes new beginnings, right? This is especially significant for us as Christians because we know that Lamentations 3 tells us that the Lord's mercies are new every single day. So we, we love the idea of the, the dawning of a new day, and, and this really spans across the spectrum of life. If you're, if you're a baseball fan, if you're a Red Sox fan, you have enjoyed the dawn of a new baseball season, right? I mean, after the debacle of last season, our beloved Red Sox, Red Sox Nation, can wear our gear with pride because we're 17-7 and seven in first place over the Yankees and everyone else. So the, the dawn of a new baseball season has been a great thing for us in New England uh, this, this spring. Uh, perhaps... Some of you can identify with the, the dawn of new love. There's something, you know, exciting about um, getting to know someone and, and, and really, um, you know, 
going through that process. Maybe if you're married, you can think back. If you're in a serious relationship right now, you can kind of look back and, and know the excitement of new beginnings and how uh, this, this dawn is rising in a particular area of life. Well, I, I want us to think about this concept of, of, of the rising sun and of, of a day dawning because the kingdom of God can be likened to the dawn of not a new day, but the dawn of a new age. Uh, the dawn of a new time. When Christ came the first time, the kingdom of God, as we'll see in Luke 17, it, it dawned, it broke forth, and now it is continuing to rise until Christ one day returns again. So I want us to, to think about how the kingdom is, is, is present among us and is going to, to one day come to be fulfilled, consummated. And, and particularly for us today in 2013, the question would be, well, well, how do we live in between these two times? In between the time of Christ's first coming and the time of Christ's second coming, how do we navigate the waters of this life so that we might? live for God's glory. Well, Luke 17 and 18 are going to help us out with that immensely. So let's start this morning in Luke 17, starting in verse 20. I just want to read the, the first couple of verses, okay? And, and the, the main encouragement for us today is to receive the kingdom through perseverance and faith in the work of Christ, okay? Receive the kingdom through perseverance and faith in the work of Christ. What does Luke write here in chapter 17, verse 20? It says this, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So I have three encouragements that I want to give you in light of, of the kingdom of Christ. What, what can we learn about the kingdom? Uh, number one, the first encouragement is to realize that the kingdom is already and not yet here. Okay? The kingdom is already here and the kingdom is also not yet here. How do we see this in Luke 17? Well, verses 20 and 21 teach us that the kingdom is here. The kingdom is here. It says in verse 20 that the Pharisees, as was their custom, most of the time not so well-intentioned, came to Jesus to ask him questions, sometimes sincere. They knew that he understood the scriptures very well, and so they would ask him questions, sometimes perhaps in sincerity, a lot of times trying to catch him in his words. So there are always these confrontations that we see in the Gospels between the Pharisees and Jesus. So they come perhaps this time with a sincere question. Hey, Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? Their concern is about the timing. You see, they, the, the Pharisees had no doubt that the kingdom would come, that the Messiah would come in and usher in this, this dawn of a new age where God makes all things right, just as it was in the beginning. But they wanted to know when. And so Jesus has to correct the Pharisees' view. He says, you know, the kingdom is not going to come with your careful observation. It's not, it's not that easy. It's, it's not, you can't just observe it in all of these different signs that you're looking for. And the Jews were notorious for wanting signs, uh, signals that were pointing to what was to come. 
Paul even talks about this in 1 Corinthians. He says Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ and him crucified. And so Jesus says that it's not with signs that the kingdom is going to come, but he says, behold, means pay attention, look up, see for yourselves what is happening. He says in verse 21, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What does Jesus mean? The kingdom is in the midst of you. Well, there are, there are a few possible ways to interpret this phrase in the Greek in terms of what, what, what verse 21 is saying, it is in our midst. Some translations, the New King James Version, would say that the kingdom of God is within you. And, and at first we might be inclined to receive that, but I think we need to be kind of more careful and nuanced in our understanding of the kingdom that Jesus is also here speaking to the Pharisees who were not yet recipients of Christ and his kingdom's work in their life. And so to say that the kingdom is, is within them, inside of a person, um, is, is not true to the reality of what was going on here. So, so we can rule that out. Another possible interpretation is to say that, that it's in our grasp or in our power, which would depend on our response to the working of the kingdom. But I think that the better way to understand this is how uh, the ESV has translated here for us, as we just read, that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's, it's in your midst. It's before you. And the interesting thing for the Pharisees is that even though the kingdom was, of God was in their midst, it was before them, they did not have eyes to see. Have you ever lost something, maybe your keys or your cell phone, and you know, you go, you know, look on the dresser, look on the kitchen counter, look in the bathroom, you know where I'm going with this, right? You know, you're just looking all over the place, you're checking the cushions in the couch, and you're calling, you know, your friends, hey, have you seen my keys, have you seen my phone? And then five minutes later, after you've panicked and worried yourself to death, your keys or your cell phone is like right there in your pocket. I mean, is anyone ever done this? Yeah? Yeah, me, me too. Me too. Well, this, this, something similar happened this week. It was a beautiful day, just like it is today. And so this past Wednesday, Marsh and I took our girls to the park. And they love to go to the park to swing and slide. And so we take our girls to Victory Park up Winthrop Street. And, um, you know, they're really excelling in their skills at the park. You know, Parker has graduated to uh, the, the big girl swing. She can kind of swing, you know, get in there by herself with a little assistance from me. You know, she's off and going. Uh, Kessid, on the other hand, she she has graduated to being able to go down the slide by herself, you know, so she is just loving that. And, uh, and so they, they love to go to the park, and I love to go with them to the park, number one, because I love them, and I love to see how much fun they have, but I also, you know, have some other motivations. So when I go to the park, I'm on the lookout for other parents that might be there because, you know, hey, I'm trying to be a missional Christian. I'm trying to, you know, get to know people and that type of thing. So, so I always, you know, hey, you know, let's Let's go over here and swing, you know, because there's parents over here and you know, mix it up and talk, get to know our neighbors and such. So, so Parker picks out the swing right next to this beautiful brown-headed girl whose mother was pushing her. So, you know, I'm, you know, I'm trying to be cool about it, you know, and just, it's like, oh, hey, it's a beautiful day, you know, just kind of doing my thing here. And, you know, finally introduce myself, we get into a conversation. Well, I, I have... Parker with me, Marsha's with Kessid, and, and we're in man-to-man coverage at this point, right? But, 
But this, this mom has her three-year-old, she's pushing. She has a, a two-year-old that's climbing on the stairs, you know, about 20 feet over to the left. And then a four-year-old who's on the slide back behind, you know, uh, us kind of out of sight. So she's not in man-to-man coverage. She's in, like, zone coverage with man-to-man principles, if you really want to break it down, okay? So, so she's, she's pushing uh, the, the three-year-old, and, and the two-year-old is now kind of moving in and off the stairs to the point where, all of a sudden, she loses sight of the two-year-old. And she's looking around, and she's hollering for the four-year-old, where, where did, you know, so-and-so go? And, and so she's, she's now panicked running around the playground, looking here and there, and, you know, I'm trying to be a good neighbor here, so I start looking around, and then I look just to the right, five feet away, and he's crawled up into the swing, waiting for someone to push him in the, like, baby swing. And, and so I holler at her, tell her everything's fine, and, and once again, this, this little kid was right there. We just didn't see him as we were scanning the whole playground. He was right there under our nose, thankfully. And you see, this is what's going on with the Pharisees. The kingdom of God is right before their eyes. They should see the kingdom at work in their midst, but they're missing it. And how could Jesus say the kingdom is in your midst? Well, it's because Jesus is the sign Jesus is the sign that is pointing to the kingdom. He is executing the work of the kingdom right before their eyes. So the blind receive sight. The deaf receive their hearing. The lame walk. The dead are raised. The good news is being preached to the poor. And the kingdom of God is work in their midst. Why is that? Because where the presence of the king is, there the work of the kingdom is happening. But the Pharisees failed to see the work of Christ. If you want to know what the kingdom of God is like, go back and look at the work of Christ in the Gospels, and we'll see what the kingdom is like and how the kingdom is at work in our midst. Now, the question becomes for us, well, Jesus has departed. He was, you know, crucified, buried, raised, ascended to heaven. So is the kingdom at work? today in our midst, then we would say, yes, absolutely, the kingdom is already here. And the, and the spirit of Christ is now at work in us and through us to be picturing forth what the kingdom of God looks like. So we need to understand that the kingdom has dawned. It has been inaugurated in the first coming of Christ, and as now we're about to see in verses 22 through 37, that the kingdom is both here, but it's not yet been fulfilled. So the kingdom, while it is here, it is also coming. You get that? And so Jesus teaches us this in verse 22. Now speaking to his disciples, he says in, it says in verse 22, and he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. 
Okay, so let's just stop right there. What is Jesus saying? He is saying, you live in a fallen, messed up world that there are just natural consequences of sin going on all around us. I think we understand this very well right now as citizens of greater Boston. And and even as Christians, you are probably going to face persecution and suffering and sacrifice from time to time. And so you are going to continue to long, continue to desire the fulfillment of the kingdom of God in total form. You were going to long for me to come back and to restore all things as they were in the beginning. But he says to the disciples, you're not going to see it. In other words, the disciples, with their own physical eyes, Christ was not going to return before they died and their spirits went to be with God. So he says then, in 23 and following, since this is true, then you need to be prepared for what life should look like in the meantime. And he teaches a couple of really important things about the coming of Christ's kingdom, okay? Number one, the return of Christ will be unmistakable. The return of Christ will be unmistakable. Read, read verses 23 and 4 with me. It says, and they will say to you, people will say to followers of Christ, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. Why? For as The lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So Jesus warns us that many will say, hey, the Messiah has arrived. The Messiah is among us. The the end of the world is going to happen on this date. And Jesus says, look, don't don't get stressed out by that. Don't go running and chasing after them because when I return, it will be unmistakable. It will be as if you are standing out in the middle of a field and when lightning lights up the sky and flashes from one side to the other, it does not matter where you are looking, in what direction, north, south, east, west, everyone will see the lightning flash and this is how it will be when I return. So it's really good to read the Gospels. It's really good to read the Bible and to to be confronted with God's truth so that we can understand these realities. Why? Because if we're we're not careful, then we'll just kind of be tossed around by every wind and wave of doctrine, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, including really popular songs and culture, okay? So I mentioned this to Marcia, and she begged me not to mention this song because she's going to have it in her head. But I, I believe it was by Jewel back in like the 90s, any like 80s, 90s kids around here. There was this song called, What If God Were One of Us? Anyone remember this song? Okay, so you can probably like YouTube it. What if God was one of... I'm going to stop there. But, um, you know, just... Uh, it was really disrespectful in some ways. I'm not hating on Joel, okay? I like your sound and all that. Um, you know, the, the point was, what if, what if God were walking among us? Okay, so, so Jesus did walk among us. That, that is true. But, but we don't have to worry about, like, if Jesus were to come back and just kind of walk among us incognito, doing his thing, you know, without us knowing it. Because when he returns... We will know it. And this is good news for us. But Jesus says, look, I won't return, verse 25, before I suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So so Jesus says that before I return, 
I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die and give my life as Luke 19.10, the, the theme verse for the gospel of Luke, give my life for, as a ransom for many. This is the fifth prediction of the passion of Christ in the gospel of Luke. Don't forget that from chapter 9, moving all the way through 24, the cross looms large in the gospel of Luke. He wants his followers to know that that the, the cross is coming, that his sacrifice is coming. And so he tells his disciples one more time, the return of Christ will be unmistakable and the return of Christ will surprise many. Verse 25. Sorry, we'll start in 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away, and likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So so what is Jesus trying to teach his disciples here? He says, "When, when I return... There will be many people, many, many people who are going about the business of their life. They're eating, they're drinking, they're being given in marriage, they're working, they're doing just a lot of fine and noble things. But the problem with all of these fine and noble things is they are doing them in such a way that they are giving little to no attention to their eternal destiny. They're not concerned about the things of God. They're not concerned about the coming kingdom of God and the return of Christ. And so he uses two Old Testament examples in Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah to give a picture that just as these people were going about life in a very casual and cavalier way, spiritually speaking, and they experienced such surprise and even sudden death, so will it be for everyone who does not look to Christ, repent and believe in him, and live. So even though the return of Christ will be unmistakable, there will be so many people who are unprepared for his return. So in all of this, Jesus is asking the question implicitly, will you be ready for my return? And this is the question I want to ask you this morning as well. Are you ready for the return of Christ? To just kind of think forward in your life, because according to the Bible, this this moment will, will happen one day, that you will stand before God, and you will give an account for your life. 
And what will you say in that moment? More importantly, what will he say to you? Has your relationship with God been reconciled and repaired? Because the Bible clearly tells us that there is a lot wrong with our world, and there is a lot wrong within us. Our relationship with God has been broken because of the sin in our life, but that's why Jesus came to restore our relationship with God, that if we would look to him and his work, we can find this salvation. So are you ready for his return? When you stand before God one day, is God going to say, hey, come into my presence because of what I've done for you, not what you tried to do for yourself? There is an implicit call to loyalty here to Christ. I think this is what's going on in these examples. Noah, by faith, built an ark so that he might not be swept away by the flood. Lot and his wife fled out of the city after being warned that it would be destroyed in God's judgment on their rampant immorality and rebellion against him. But if you remember back, if you read the Genesis account, you know that while they were fleeing out of the city, Lot's wife turns and looks back against the command of God, and she turns into, the Bible says, a pillar of salt. God's judgment on her. And, and why was this? Why was that judgment leveled on her? Is because she looked back caring about what she left behind more than she cared about obeying the command of God and fleeing for her life. And so Jesus is calling his disciples in the meantime while they experience this, this troubled world in which we all live. He's calling us to faithfulness and loyalty to not look back. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. We've already seen this in Luke 9.62. So our commitment to Christ is an all-out commitment. It's one where we keep our eyes so fixed on Christ and so hopeful of his return that everything else pales in comparison to our love for him. So we need to realize that the kingdom is, is both already here and it's not yet fully realized in here, but it's coming when Christ will return and restore all things. Secondly, what we're going to see in this next parable, seek the kingdom through persistent and faith-filled prayer for justice. Seek the kingdom through persistent faith and faith-filled prayer for justice. Uh, I want to read this parable in its entirety and then ask two major questions and answer them. Verse 1, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him night and day? Will he delay long over them? 
I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So this parable on the persistent widow is directly connected to this teaching on the coming kingdom of God. You see, Luke does us a favor this time in verse 1, and instead of us searching for the meaning of the parable, which usually comes in some kind of dialogue or at the end, uh, he gives it to us right off the bat. He says that Jesus taught them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. Now, why is this? Well, in this, we begin to have our first question answered, which is, which is what? What motivates our prayer? What motivates your prayer? Like, why do you pray? I mean, I think most people would say, yeah, I pray, even those that aren't regular church attenders or, or maybe even would call themselves Christians. They would, they would, many people would still pray on a consistent basis. Well, well, why do we pray? I think the first answer is that because we understand our need for prayer. We understand that we have an immense need before God, and so we, we, we acknowledge that and we go to God in prayer. This is what Jesus is, is trying to get at, and I think this is why Luke has positioned this material after chapter 17, because he says, look, in this, in this life, as you experience trouble and the fallenness of this world, you are going to have need to persevere And you're going to have need to cry out to God ultimately for justice. So we can't just reduce this teaching to some kind of moral instruction on being, you know, consistent people who who pray consistently. But the prayer specifically is for justice to be brought. And that justice comes when in the second coming of Christ. As verse 8 tells us, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? So we pray because our need is so great. We, we know that, that even though Christ's coming is not immediate, it is imminent, and until then we will face trouble in this world, so we have need to go to God in prayer. And Jesus shows us this through a story of a persistent widow. This is part of what we love about the Gospel of Luke, right? Jesus is always talking about outcasts, people that were not respected, esteemed highly in society. He uses them to show that the kingdom really belongs to these kind of people who are poor in spirit and who see their need before God. And so Jesus uses an example of a widow. She doesn't have much money. She doesn't have people advocating on her behalf, but she does have two things. She has a cause, which is justice, and she has persistence. Unfortunately for her, initially, the judge also has persistence, and he continues to ignore her cries for mercy and help. But it says because she continued to come to him again and again and again, it says that he eventually caves in and gives in and gives her what she wants even though this judge, Jesus, holds him up as an example who is someone who fails to keep both of the greatest commandments. It says that he neither fears God, he neither has a a love and reverence and respect for God that leads to wise living, nor does he have, even though he's a judge who is supposed to care for people and and seek their good, it says that he, he neither respects man. So there's a failure to both love God and love one's neighbor. 
So Jesus says, by way of contrast, if this unjust judge will give mercy to this persistent widow, the argument moves from the lesser to the greater, how much more will your heavenly Father, who is perfectly loving and perfectly just, give justice to those who are his, to his elect, to his chosen ones? And so again, Jesus is, is, is trying to fill the disciples with hope. So it's not just knowing our need that motivates our prayer, but it's knowing the character of God that motivates our prayer. This is the greater reality. We have a great need before God, but God, because of his character, because of who he is, his heart for us, our relationship with him, he hears our cries and he will answer our prayers when we come to him again and again and again. This is really good news for us. God has both the desire, the heart, and the ability, the power, the hands to answer the prayers of his people. So Jesus says, hey, God will give justice to his elect who cry out to him night and day. He will not delay long over them. In fact, he will grant them justice speedily. He is teaching us that God, because of his love for us, he will hear us, he will answer us, and he will bring about justice. Now, let's ask the question, how do we reconcile this, this statement from Jesus that, that it won't be long, that justice will come speedily, that he will not delay long over them when it has been roughly 2,000 years since Jesus spoke these words? How do we reconcile this? And I think there are two plausible explanations for us to consider. Number one, 2 Peter 3, I believe, says that a a day to the Lord is like a thousand years to us. In other words, the way that we calculate time is not the way that God calculates time. It's because God is outside of time. He is not bound by time. He's eternal. So so the way that we see time and from our perspective is is on a totally different playing field from how God sees time and executes in, in time and space. But then number two, listen to what Daryl Box said as a New Testament scholar. He says, though the delay seems long, after the vindication, it will seem short. Have you ever just longed for something for, 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 it seemed like, you know, years and years and years when actually it was only maybe a few weeks or a few months, but it's because you wanted it so bad, it seems like an eternity before that day arrives. And then after you get to that point and you receive that which you desired, you look back and you say, man, how time flew. Where where did the time go? So in light of eternity, when Jesus returns, even though it seems like so long to us, when we get to that day and Christ returns and brings vindication and justice to all people, we will say, wow, that was quick. Jesus will not delay in bringing judgment and justice. And so this this teaches us what should motivate our prayer, our great need, and the character of God. But then how should we pray? And Jesus teaches us this as well. First off, we should pray with persistence, perseverance. He says they, they should always pray and not give up, not lose heart. So the idea here is that we would continually Uh, go to God in prayer. 
This is not continuous prayer as if, you know, we should call into work, you know, tomorrow our bosses, hey, Jesus said we should always pray. And so, you know, we're just going to like call in sick or whatever the case may be so that we can just pray all week this coming week. Okay, that's, that's not the idea here, if you were hoping for that, maybe. But he's saying that, that we should have a continual lifestyle of prayer, going to God at all times, at any time, day and night, bringing our request to God. So, so let me just pose this to you. For the Christian, prayer should be an evident mark in our life. Would someone look at your life and say, wow, that, that is a, a praying person. Prayer really marks their life. They, they consistently pray. They consistently go to God. In the good times, in the bad times, they, they, they stop to pray. When someone has a need around you, I mean, I know we're all, you know, kind of going through life and busy, so I'm not, I'm not condemning, hey, I'll be praying for you kind of, kind of comment. Okay, I say it all the time as a pastor, hey, I'll be praying for you. And, but, but you know what? There, there are moments where we actually have the time just to stop right there and pray. Does that ever cross your mind? Hey, just, hey, let's just take a moment. Let me pray for you. To pray in that moment, to continue praying for them. Does, does prayer mark your life? Let me ask a more searching question. Where have you lost heart in prayer? This phrase here, it refers to being weary, to growing weary in life. Again, in this difficult world that we live in, things do not always unfold the way that we want them to. And so is there a, a need in your family? in your marriage, in your parenting, with a family member where you just feel like you're growing weary and losing heart? Is there something with your work life? Is, is there there's some responsibility that's just creating discontent in your heart that you just want to say, man, I've prayed about that enough. I'm giving up. I'm putting that to the side. I can't do it any longer. Maybe you're praying for the healing of someone who you love that is sick or injured. Maybe you're just longing for some glimmer of hope and peace that you can cling to. Jesus says, continue to pray. Because even though the answer may be no, not right now, or wait, God will answer all of our prayers according to his will and his timing. And listen to this. There will be times, okay, we just need to understand this and get our theology kind of straightened out. There will be times when God does not answer our prayer favorably. We will have family members who die when they do, we don't want them to die. We will have relationships that are fractured and broken that in this life never seem to be restored. As bad as we want that, as, as much as we pray for that. But this is where our larger view of eternity comes in. This is where the second coming of Christ fills us with so much hope because Christ will bring ultimate justice. He will make right all of the wrongs in our life and he will deliver justice to us. So we pray with perseverance. We pray with faith. And in all of this, we're praying for God's justice to be given in his second coming. So verse 8 is, is, is not a question of doubt. 
from Jesus. When I return, will I find faith on earth? Jesus knows he will find faith on earth. What it is is a call to faith among those who are hearing his voice. So in other words, you disciples, will you, will you be filled with faith longing for my return? I think what Oswald Chambers says about faith is, is helpful here. He says, seeing is never believing. <laughs> Contrary to what we often say, seeing is never believing. We interpret what we see in light of what we believe. Faith is confidence in God before you see God emerging. Therefore, the nature of faith is that it must be tried. So our faith as followers of Christ will necessarily be tested and tried as we journey through this life. We can bank on it. Because faith is being hopeful and certain and sure that we will see God emerging, see God at work, even when we can't see it immediately with our physical eyes. And so this is how we seek the kingdom, through persistent and faithful prayer for justice. And then thirdly, I think verses 9 through 17 give us a picture of what this faith should look like. We should receive the kingdom with great humility and dependence. I want to start by reading verse 9. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Wow. Jesus is going to tell this parable, it says, for those who trusted in themselves because they thought they were righteous and they consequently treat others with contempt. The NIV says, I like what it says, it says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. And so what Jesus here, as he so wisely does as a master teacher, he uses the parable to cut to the person, okay? Don't miss that. He, he uses this teaching to address the hearts of people who were listening to his teaching. And he does so by giving us two contrasting characters, once again, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The Pharisee here gives us a picture of one kind of righteousness. Okay, so there are two kinds of righteousness that will be on display in this parable, and the Pharisee displays self-righteousness. He has it all together. It says that he stood off by himself, which is probably a way, because what we see in verse 13, that the, the tax collector stood far off, it probably indicates that this, the Pharisee stood where everyone could see him. This was their practice. They wanted everyone to see how great they were and how righteous they were. So this time he just verbalizes and lets everyone know it. He says, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not so immoral. I'm, I'm not a robber. I'm not uh, so unrighteous. That's what the word unjust there means, which is 
probably ironic because Jesus is talking to those who trusted in themselves because they thought they were righteous. Uh, I'm not an adulterer, and, and look at my life. I'm so, I'm so holy. I'm so righteous. I'm such a great Christian. Man, I'm in church every Sunday. I give when I'm supposed to give. Man, I pray. I go to community group. And Jesus says, this Pharisee, though he thinks he is righteous, really does not have righteousness at all. The question becomes, is he righteous? Is is anyone righteous? And the Bible tells us in Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. So, so how do we reconcile this with what we see in the world? We see people who don't love God doing good things, right things, right? So, so we know that as those made in God's image and, and those who have been made with a conscience that we can differentiate between right and wrong, but right actions do not mean that we are righteous before God. And even the Bible says quite strongly that even our righteous acts are like filthy rags in the sight of God. Why? Because they weren't done for God's glory. They weren't really done out of a heart that loved God. They were just doing out of, out of, out of uh, self-motivated works. And so Jesus is trying to help us understand that self-righteousness will never bring us a right standing before God. We assume that we have an inherent righteousness in and of ourselves, a righteousness that is inside of us just because we try to do a number of good things. But, but this is the difference. Listen, this is the difference between gospel and religion, and this is the difference between heaven and hell. What we need is not an inherent righteousness that we don't really have. What we need is an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of us that makes us right with God. And this is what the cross is all about. And this is what we see in the words and posture of the tax collector in verse 13. It says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, a sign of contrition, humility, grief over his sin. And he says to God these short words that pack so much punch to where we should be before God. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, this man saw his need before God. The the Pharisee had no needs. He has no request before God. He just wants God to kind of pat him on the back, say, hey, I'm really thankful that you're on my team here because you are so great. And the tax collector comes to God and he says, God, I have absolutely nothing but, but sin to offer you. So would you just please be merciful to me? I have no righteousness to offer you. I need your righteousness to come in and fill my life and make me right before you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What happens in the cross is that God sends Jesus to take on our sin, 
our unrighteousness so that by looking to him in faith, we might exchange our unrighteousness for his righteousness. So Christ gives us his righteousness, alien righteousness, righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves and is then imputed to us, given to us, placed within us so that we might have life. So when you boil everything down, people will either pursue God and a right standing before God because of their own works and their own merit, or they will pursue God not because of anything righteous that they could produce, but because of the mercy of God. The Pharisee sought righteousness through merit. The tax collector sought righteousness through mercy. And, and do you see how this works? I mean, if, if, if we have a righteousness to offer to God, then that basically totally annihilates the reason that Christ came to live a perfect life and to die a substitutionary death for us that we might have life in him. We don't need Christ and we don't need his cross if we have a righteousness of our own to offer God. So have you embraced the righteousness of Christ? Have you prayed this prayer? Okay, there, you know, some people refer to a sinner's prayer that when people you know, see their need and acknowledge their need before God and, 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 and cry out to him that they might have life in him, there can be like this prayer offered to God. And, and this is a great example of a prayer. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. You just say, God, would you be merciful to me, a sinner? And it doesn't matter if it's the first time that you've ever come to that realization to say, I need Christ and I don't have a righteousness of my own to offer God, but I want the righteousness that Christ can give me. And you say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or if you've been a Christian for most of your life and you would say, hey, God, I still need your mercy because I am still a sinner saved by your grace. We love the quote by Richard Sibbs around here that says, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And I want you to know that and believe that today so that you might be motivated to cry out to God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What is the result of this? Well, we see in verse 14, it says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the tax collector, who no one would think would have a right standing before God, he is the one who goes home justified while the Pharisee walks home not justified before God. And this term justified means that that he was forgiven, that he was counted righteous in God's sight because of the mercy God has on him. So what do we learn from this about receiving the kingdom? That we have to come to God in humility to say, God, I need your grace. I need your mercy. Would you be merciful to me? In the the final three verses of our passage today, back this up. It it talks about children. Children were coming to Jesus and the disciples are getting upset about people bringing children to Jesus and and Jesus rebukes his disciples. And then he says in, in verse 16, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. 
Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What is, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that you have to have humility to be a recipient of his kingdom, and you have to have a childlike dependence on God for everything in your life in order to receive his mercy and grace and kingdom in your life. So I want you to think about this. The cry of our city lately has been what? Boston strong, right? I mean, and what a, what a noble cry that people would come together and say, we are not going to be beat down by any act of terrorism, but we're going to come together and we're going to be strong for one another that our city might continue to thrive and flourish. Hey, I am all about Boston strong. Okay, I'm probably going to get a t-shirt very, very soon. But, but here's what the Bible teaches us paradoxically about strength. The Bible says... You are only strong when you see your weakness. The Bible tells us that we find healing when we really see our brokenness. We find salvation when we see just how lost we really are. So what I want to do today is invite all of us just to respond to God by praying this simple prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm going to invite Micah and Seth and John to come back up, and I want to just lead us in a time of prayer. So if you would, just bow your head and close your eyes. And I don't know, listen, I don't know where you are today and, and where you stand before God, but listen, if you need salvation in Christ, if, if, if when Christ returns, you're not sure that he would welcome you in because you've been seeking a righteousness of your own, then I want to invite you to cry out to God today and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and receive the righteousness that God offers to you. If you've walked with Christ for some time, you know you have your great need. And so would you cry out again today, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your love to fill me again and again and again. God, we express our need before you. We have nothing to offer you that we could produce in and of ourselves. We can never be good enough. Our merit will never get the job done. So God, we thank you today for the righteousness of Christ. We thank you today for the work of Christ on our behalf, that he would be our sacrifice, our substitute, our savior. So it's in him that we find our strength. It's in him that we find everything we need for life and godliness. And I pray, Lord, that you in each individual's heart today and for us as a group collectively, that we would find all that we need in him. God, we thank you for the sufficiency of your grace, the sufficiency of your love. And Lord, we pray that you would shower it on us even now as we sing. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.